0: guys. As uh, I get started today, I want to um, tell you about what I consider to be maybe one of my finest parenting moments ever. Although I think it's safe to say that not many people in my household would think that. Uh, in fact, come to think of it, nobody else in my, my family believes that is true. Uh, several years ago, my wife and I, we invited some friends over for uh, a game night. And as we were seated there around the dining room table, Uh, One of my daughters came up from behind me, uh, Kaylee, who was probably about six or seven at the time, and she tapped me on the shoulder, and I turned around, and I noticed that she was holding something out to me, and she said, Daddy, can you fix it? Can you fix it so that it can stand up? And I looked at it, and I noticed that it was a small plastic horse, and that one of the front legs was broken off right at the knee. She was holding the other part in her other hand, and she said, Daddy, can you fix it so that it can stand? And I said, well, let me see, uh, Kaylee, so I I think I might be able to help. So I took the the horse in my hands, and I was sort of inspecting it a little bit, and I don't know what came over me, but in this moment of absolute genius, I quickly snapped off the other three legs of the horse right at the knee. (laughs) And then I stood that little horse on the table, and though noticeably shorter than it had been, It stood all on its own. And I said, look, Kaylee, I fixed your horse. I fixed it so that it can stand. And I don't know why, but like my family wasn't absolutely thrilled with that decision. Um, I was only trying to help, but they, they didn't seem to get it. And they won't let me live that down even to this day. He's a terrible father. Possibly. But don't worry, Kaylee, I will pay for your therapy. But isn't, isn't it true that when something in our lives is broken, we just want it fixed, right? When something in our lives is broken, it could be something insignificant like a little plastic horse, really cheaply made, really dollar store stuff, Kaylee, sorry. Um, or it could be something really significant. No matter how it fits on the spectrum, it feels like there's something inside of us when something's broken or incomplete or not quite right that we kind of feel that inside and we want to see it put right. It's like we can't rest until we find resolution. And I think this shows up all over the place in our lives in simple and big ways. It might be something as simple as that jigsaw puzzle or the unfinished book where we seem a little bit restless and a little bit dissatisfied until we finally place that last piece of the puzzle or read that final word and close the back cover. We feel it in our music when we hear that dissonant chord that we just long to hear resolved. I think we experience it in our relationships through a a friendship that's gone sour, a a promise that's been broken, an argument that hasn't yet been resolved. We know it in the pain of a, a broken family A broken marriage where we wonder, will things ever be the way that they once were? I think most poignantly, we probably feel this in some of the great injustices in our world that we encounter. You know, people are starving. A power group is abusing someone weaker. Children are being exploited and something deep within us cries out, that's not right. Somebody needs to fix that. I need to fix that. And I think this morning that That is because broken things are for fixing. Broken things, they're for fixing. Ruined things are for repairing. And experiencing these broken things in our world seems to whet our appetite for restoration. Well, last week we began a new series that we're calling Ruined. And before I go any further, I want to take just a moment to introduce myself. My name is Mark Nelson, and I have the privilege of pastoring those out at our Greece campus. And I do want to say Uh, A quick hello to those joining us from any of our campuses this morning. It's really good to be with you, as well as those joining us online. It's great to have you with us as well. Would you take a Bible or your mobile device and go to Nehemiah chapter 1? Nehemiah chapter 1, if you're using one of our Bibles, that's on page 383. And last week... Drew introduced us to Nehemiah and and to some important background information for this period in Israel's history. And if you weren't able to see that last week, I hope you'll go back on our website or our app and check that out. But I want you to know that this week, we're not really going to be moving the storyline of Nehemiah ahead very far. Instead, we're going to be zooming in on Nehemiah's response, his response to the broken condition of Jerusalem. And I think in his response, we're going to learn some really crucial things about our own response to broken things in our own lives. So I've asked you to go to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. We read the words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, in the month of Kislev, think December. In the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. Remember that uh, Israel had been taken, Judah had been taken into captivity into Babylon, and by this time in history, the Persian Empire had taken control, and so Nehemiah is asking how his fellow countrymen are doing that are still in Israel. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah receives back word that things are not okay, that Jerusalem is in ruins, and I mean check out how it affected him. He's physically affected. It's like he's been punched in the gut. He he can't stand. He He's bent over, he sits down and he weeps and he mourns for days. He can't eat, he fasts and he prays to God for days and days. It's physically affected him and it's clear that this was a game changer for Nehemiah. His body, yes, was in Persia, but his heart and his interests were in Jerusalem. Some 800 miles away. In fact, we see this despair in Nehemiah reappearing in chapter 2. If we look at verse 1 of chapter 2, we read, In the month of Nisan, that's not a car, think April, okay? In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Remember, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And so a whole four months has gone by, yet Nehemiah is still in such great despair that the king can read it written all over his face. And Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. I was very afraid. Why was he afraid in this moment? Well, for at least two reasons. First, because to show sadness in the presence of a king was thought to be dishonorable, and it could have cost Nehemiah his position. In fact, it it could have been a capital offense. It could have cost him his life. But secondly, He was, Nehemiah was no doubt aware that this very king had already commanded the stopping of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. So he knew he would be, he would be requesting something that the king opposed. Nevertheless, verse three, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. That's kind of code for please don't kill me, right? Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? And as we follow the storyline, we know that amazingly this king allows Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. In fact, he even equips him to do so. But the question that I want us to focus on this morning is, why such extreme despair on the part of Nehemiah? What was it that caused him such grief? When I was a young boy, my favorite place in all the world to go was to my grandparents' house. Because to my young five-year-old mind, my grandparents' place was like a magical play place with all kinds of things to discover that we didn't have at home. There were all sorts of old tools and trinkets, and they seemed to fill the basement and the garage, and they had a, a garden that seemed to stretch on the length of a football field. I remember my grandparents' house was quite modest, but they always took such great pride in it, and they always took such great care of it. Well, I was back in the area a few years ago, and I decided to take a detour and go see this house that I hadn't seen in probably 25 years. At that point, when I drove up to the house, my heart just sank because the present owners had just simply let it go. It was run down and in a state of great despair, a uh, great disrepair. But I, I, I was sad, but I, I didn't weep and mourn for days. I was sad, but I wasn't despondent. I was sad, yes, but there was no fasting or even praying that I can recall. Yes, it's true that I was sad, but, but why didn't it drive me into despondency? And why did receiving word of Jerusalem hit Nehemiah so incredibly hard when in fact it was a city that he had never even personally been to? You see, I think um, Nehemiah's sadness wasn't necessarily because he had a thing for walls and gates. Right? I don't know that his sadness was altogether tied to the fact that his countrymen were in trouble, although he, I'm sure he cared about that. Could it be that the real difference between my sadness over my grandparents' place and Nehemiah's sadness over Jerusalem was because my sadness was purely nostalgic? But Nehemiah's sadness was actually tied to something far more significant. You see, to Nehemiah, Jerusalem wasn't just a city, it was a symbol. Of God's presence with his people and his favor on them. So a broken Jerusalem equaled a broken relationship with God. You see, the name Jerusalem is actually composed of two parts. There's the first half, Jeru or Yeru, meaning place of or people, or or place of or city of. And then there's the second half, Salem, which is actually derived from the same root word as the common Hebrew greeting, Shalom. And that word is often translated peace. So Jerusalem, city of peace. But a fuller understanding of that word shalom means wholeness, completeness. Things as they were always meant to be, restored, unbroken. And so the, the thing that, that really got to Nehemiah, it wasn't the broken down walls or the burned gates. It was that things were not as they should be. And, and specifically the thing that really drove Nehemiah was that God's name was being disgraced. That was the thing that drove Nehemiah to such despair, that the unbelieving nations around Israel were mocking the people of God, but more importantly, they were mocking God himself. And this is something that Nehemiah just could not bear. We know this is the case based on Nehemiah's prayer to God in chapter one. If we look at verse eight of chapter one, we read, remember, The instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you, that is Israel, are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah here is simply recalling God's words to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 12, where God says to Moses, you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling to that place you must go. And so we know that, that in this sense, God's name, it, it, it means his, his attributes and his presence. So God was essentially saying that he was looking for a place where two things would be true, where one, uh, his presence would reside, he would be there. And where, number two, what he is like would be on display so that he could be known and experienced by humanity. And not just for the sake of Israel either. God actually has something much bigger in mind. Listen to what he tells his prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 49. God says, It is too small a thing for you, Isaiah, to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. In other words, this isn't only for Israel. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that is, everyone non-Jewish, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So God's intent was that through Israel, he might bring salvation to the whole world. But why? What did the world need saving from? Well, from the beginning, God had created a perfect, unbroken world. However, we know that the very first man and woman made decided to rebel against God's authority and thereby introduced sin and brokenness into our world which has been passed down through every generation since then even to today and that rebellion against God it placed us under his judgment and it caused us to have a broken relationship with him and whenever and wherever we see brokenness in our world today that's a continued reflection of this reality however through one family Israel God promised to bring a deliverer who would come to rescue the world from its devastation, from sin's devastation. And Nehemiah's sadness is so deep because he recognized that the broken walls and the burned gates of Jerusalem were simply emblematic, that God's very plan for the hope of the world was in a state of disrepair. And this lit a fire inside of Nehemiah. It lit a fire inside him that drove him to action. It's true that Nehemiah was broken, but I would say he was broken for good. He was broken for the good of what God just might accomplish through him. He couldn't any longer sit idly by. He couldn't sit on his hands. He had to act. Nehemiah was broken for good, and he went on a campaign and led the rebuilding of the walls. But similarly, I want to suggest this morning that just as Nehemiah's brokenness drove him to action, God wants to use our distress over the broken things in our world, that internal unrest that we thought about earlier. He wants to use that in our lives to accomplish great good. Simply put, I would say it this way, that God wants to use our brokenness to accomplish his good. He wants to use our brokenness to accomplish his good. He wants to use that yearning that we have within us to see broken things fixed wherever we find them as a reminder that things aren't as they should be. And this should serve as a powerful motivator to action in our lives. I don't know if you're old enough to remember 9-11, that horrific day where terrorists killed thousands in New York, Pennsylvania, and Washington. But as the smoke was still rising, courageous men and women all over our country, courageous young men and women all over our country flooded military recruitment centers because they knew something was severely broken, something was wrong and needed to be made right, and they couldn't sit idly by. That's brokenness in action. That's this heart of Nehemiah. And so what are the ways in which God wants to use this kind of a heart to accomplish good? Well, I would suggest first that he wants to accomplish good in our world. You could call this the good around us. Good in our world. He wants to accomplish great good through us in our world. It was brokenness about the world around him that led William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, to take action. Listen to his words. He said, well, women weep as they do now, I'll fight. Will little children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. Will men go to prison in and out, in and out as they do now, I'll fight. Well, there is a drunkard left? Well, there is a poor lost girl upon the streets? Well, there remains one dark soul without the light of God? I'll fight. I'll fight to the very end. And that same brokenness still has that organization ringing its bell to this day. But when you and I read statistics that tell us that one in four people in our city are in poverty, nearly one in five in extreme poverty, when we read that that Rochester ranks number one among like sized cities in our nation for childhood poverty, when we come to discover that more lives are taken in the state of New York before birth than in any other state, or that ninety five percent of people in our city don't go to a church that proclaims the hope of the gospel. When we discover that nearly three quarters of millennials don't attend a religious service of any kind, something about statistics like that ought to just grip us internally, and we ought to respond by by feeling and by acting, by saying that's not right, that's not the way things were meant to be, that's not shalom. See, God wants to use our brokenness about the condition of our world to accomplish great good. But there's another place that I believe God wants to perform good through our brokenness that probably fits the context of Nehemiah even more closely. Remember how earlier we talked about the fact that in the days of Moses and of Nehemiah, God was looking for a place where two things would be true, where his presence would reside, and where what he is like would be put on display? Well, I want you to know that that is the perfect description of a Jesus follower today. That that That's what Christians ought to be all about. You see, in the Old Testament, God's presence was found in a very specific location, a geographic location known as the temple in Jerusalem. But today, his presence doesn't reside in a geographic location like a church building, but instead in a group of people called the church. And that is is where God's spirit resides today. Our bodies, the New Testament says, are The temple of the Holy Spirit, if we've placed our faith in Christ. So his presence resides within us, and what he desires for our lives ought to be put on display. So the second type of good God wants to accomplish, I would call good in our lives, or the good in us. Good in our lives. Maybe the most direct application that you and I can draw from Nehemiah's brokenness over the condition of Jerusalem is to evaluate our own brokenness over the The condition of our spiritual lives. Do I hurt over all the ways that the walls of my spiritual life have been broken down and I've left my life vulnerable to the enemy's attack? Have I lost concern over whether or not God's name is mocked on account of the way that I live, maybe through my words or my actions? Have I grown apathetic or careless about whether or not I develop my life spiritually through through spiritual disciplines? When we recognize that God's presence resides within us and that we bear his name, it leads to a lot of good because only then are we able to grow in Christ-likeness the way that God intends. Only then are we able to influence people in a way that rightly points them toward God. God wants to use our brokenness to accomplish his good both in our world and in our lives. But how would we know if we were really broken? I mean, how would we know? Would we know just because we have the feels you know, like we, we feel great compassion for the world around us, or we feel all broken up about the condition of our lives. Is that how we would know whether we were really broken? Well, I think Nehemiah here helps us too, because, because we see that his brokenness drove him to act. It led him to take a risk. He went to the king at the risk of his position, maybe even his life, and that's what genuine brokenness does. Genuine brokenness always lays it on the line. That's what it does. So if, if I'm a person that says that I want to have victory over temptation in my life, but then I never act in, t- in removing myself from the place of temptation, then I'm displaying that I'm not really broken in that area of my life. If I say that I want to be you know, honoring to God in the way that I spend my money and my finances, but I, I don't act in a way that constrains my spending habits, then I'm not truly broken in that area. If I say that I care about my neighbor or about those in distress, but I never lift a finger to help them, I'm not truly broken over their condition. Genuine brokenness is always willing to lay it on the line. But I think perhaps our biggest problem when it comes to brokenness is this, that the more familiar broken things become to us, the less we tend to notice them. The more familiar they become to us, the less we tend to notice them. Have you ever noticed this dynamic at work in your own life? If you've ever moved from one house to another, you most certainly have because it's not until you put that house on the market and you begin to view it through the eyes of a prospective buyer that you're like, oh, how long has that faucet been dripping? And wow, those paint colors on the walls really need to be updated. And honey, how long has that hole been in the wall? About five years, dear. Really? Like I, I didn't even notice. Like I walked by it every day in and out the door and I just became numb. I just became desensitized to the broken things around me. And it could it be that we've also grown numb to the familiar broken things around us in our world or inside us to the point where we no longer even notice what's broken, where our heart no longer hurts for the things that God's heart hurts for. So what we need is to look at broken things around us and inside us with fresh eyes. We need fresh eyes, but how do we get them? How do we do that? How do we keep from getting desensitized, from getting numb? Well, I wanna suggest a couple of helpful approaches. First, I wanna suggest that we get close to broken things. You and I, that we get close to broken things. To get close to the broken things in our world is gonna mean getting close to broken people and broken situations, taking time to hear the stories of people that are broken. It's gonna mean that middle school youth leader that sits beside that, that young middle school girl and listens to her share through tears the story of her parents' divorce. It's gonna mean that, that that individual that chooses to get up from their, their table of friends in the lunchroom to go befriend that fellow lonely student who sits by himself every day. It's gonna mean... Um, listening, maybe leaning in a little bit more intently to that coworker who shares about the wreckage left behind in her life through a series of poor and unwise choices. It might mean bringing a meal to a homeless person, but instead of just dropping it off, actually sitting with him and listening to him tell his life story. It might be visiting a prison and visiting some inmates there. There could be a whole bunch of different ways that we can get close to broken things. There's a lot of ways. and I want to um, encourage you to go check out NorthRidgeServes.com. That is a tremendous resource that our church hosts just for the purpose of helping all of us get close to the broken things in our world. When it comes to getting close to the broken things in our inner world, that's going to mean taking a fresh, honest look at the condition of our hearts. Areas that might be compromised, that we've grown numb to, we don't notice them anymore. Areas where God's name might not be honored, it might be being mocked because of us. Actions that don't line up with his character, words that don't reflect his love. And then reconsidering the seriousness of that as one who bears his name. But not only will this involve getting close to broken things, it's also going to mean that we invest in broken things invest in broken things. Jesus, after all, was the one that said that where we spent our money, that's what we would care about. Where our treasure is, our heart would also be. And so this is certainly going to mean financial investment. It's going to mean that we think about the ways that we're spending our resources and we give sacrificially toward the broken things in our world. It could be through the opportunities that you have here at Northridge Church or another charitable organization or a ministry on your heart but also through relational investing, I think, as well, with hurting people who Christ wants to rescue from despair. To invest in the broken things within us, inside of our hearts, it means taking time to confess sin where we know it to be there, regularly confessing sin and investing in our lives spiritually through the habits and the disciplines of reading God's word and praying to God and becoming that person that rightly bears God's name. I think this also, by the way, means inviting other people into your inner world and allowing them to challenge you and encourage you along the pathway of faith. We have a dynamic uh, avenue for that called community groups. I know many of you are already a part of that. If you're not, I really want to encourage you to do that because without a community group, it's so easy to get numb to the broken things in my life. If we're going to remain broken, it's going to mean getting close to and investing in broken things. But at some point, someone might well ask, you know, if I remain broken, then doesn't that mean, like if I live that kind of a lifestyle, doesn't that mean I'm gonna live sort of this pessimistic, negative, sad kind of existence? I think that's a fair question, but the answer is absolutely no, it doesn't. Because while it will drive us to compassion, and while it will most certainly drive us to action, it won't drive us to a state of despondency, a state of pessimism. Here's why. Because of the gospel, brokenness doesn't mean hopelessness. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, brokenness doesn't mean hopelessness. Because Jesus took upon himself our sin and his body and took it to the cross and was broken there for us, he there broke the power of sin and death for those that trust in Christ. And yes, for a while, while sin is allowed to continue to wreak havoc on our world, we know that the Bible promises a time, a day that will come, when sin and death itself will be broken for good. That is broken forever and so even in the midst of the brokenness around us in our world or the midst in the midst of the brokenness that we feel internally inside of us we don't lose hope we remain hope filled i don't know if you recall a tremendously heavy snowfall that hit us in early january we got about a foot and a half of this really wet and heavy snow and uh, I did on that day what probably most everyone did in our community. I went to clear my driveway. And so I got the snow blower out of the garage and I started blowing snow with it. But it didn't take long to discover that I wasn't actually blowing snow, I was only pushing it. And with a snow like that, I learned that I can only push it for like one foot. That's it, that's all I got. I don't have Drew's guns, right? One foot. And um, man, I was like, what's going on? I don't wanna, I do not wanna shovel. And so I got to figure out what's wrong with the snowblower. So I walked around the front of it and noticed that one side of the auger, which is the part of the snowblower that intakes the snow into the machine, it wasn't turning. And upon further inspection, I noticed that there was a pin or a bolt that was meant to be in place that had snapped off and it it allowed the auger to just spin freely. It it didn't turn like it was supposed to. Well, I learned a little bit about snowblowers. So the deal is this, that that little bolt or pin, it's actually called a shear bolt. And the reason it's called a shear bolt is because it's designed to be sheared off or snapped off whenever the snowblower runs into something hard or resistible like 8,000 pounds of heavy Rochester snow right? So the manufacturer of the snowblower was really genius and clever, and they thought, you know what we're going to do? Instead of, like, the snowblower and this auger attempting to continue to turn and possibly damaging the gearbox of this expensive, like, $1,000 machine, instead of damaging the machine, we're going to put all that punishment into that little $1 pin, that little bolt, and we'll let it be snapped off, and then the owner can just buy a new pin. No big deal. But as I thought about it, I realized, you know, not too many things are actually designed to break. But our hearts are. God designed our hearts like he designed that sheer bolt. So that when we came upon some hard reality in our world, that instead of the the mission being damaged, of making more and better followers of Jesus, and instead of the good that we're meant to do being undone, that instead our hearts would break and we would then spring into action for the good of what God wants to accomplish in our world. So where is it today that, that your heart is broken? When is the last time you remember having a broken heart? Do you remember that? What was it over? Did it lead to action? Did it lead to good? When was the last time your heart cried out, that's not the way that it was supposed to be? That's not the way that, that the world was supposed to be. That's not how God's name is honored. Has it been a while? Have you grown numb to it? If so, then today I want to encourage myself. I want to challenge myself, but I also want to challenge you. Let's go out from this place today and let's go get close to broken things. And let's go invest in broken things so that God can then use those experiences to continue to break us for the good that he wants to do through us. Will you pray with me? God, I'm so thankful today for broken things in our world. It's kind of a weird prayer, and we don't often pray thanks for brokenness, but God, it's in and through those things that you've chosen to accomplish some of the things, some of the greatest things in our our world that um, can take place, God, and I pray that you would continue to work that kind of deep compassion for the broken things in our world and in our lives, in and through us, so that God, what you desire to have accomplished in us and through us can take place. God, thank you for Nehemiah and his example that challenges us today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.